Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. In this series, we are observing men and women in the Bible, what we can learn from them, and observing God's constant faithfulness in the lives of His people. Today we consider Samuel's pious mother, Hannah, and God's providence through her petition for a son to dedicate to God. You can find out more about our ministry by visiting us at seaoffire.org. You can also view James's latest videos on YouTube at Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope this message serves to edify the church. Okay, so as we continue through this series, lest this ministry gets accused of misogyny, we are looking at two women in a row. Uh, we're looking at, uh, we're going to consider Samuel's mother, uh, Hannah. So remember Deborah called herself the mother. She was raised up a mother in Israel. I actually see Hannah likewise. Remember this this account follows straight after the book of Judges, where and you know it concludes in a very dark period, very dark period, especially with the tribe of Benjamin. And I'd encourage you all to read that yourselves, since we didn't consider that. However, this is a very dark period, and so just briefly inter- introducing this, since y'all read the account, we we all know that Hannah was barren, and that's really to signify the barrenness of the nation, the barrenness of their spiritual, really their spiritual decline into barrenness. So they're, they're kind, they kind of have a famine of spirit, let me put it that way, or the famine of the Word of God, which we'll come across. But we, I want to just jump in to this narrative, but again, we need to set up the scene and realize and remember everything we've looked at so far, and then going in to the kingdom. She's giving birth to the final judge, the final prophet who will anoint the king of Israel. So basically, right now, it's like a theocracy. You know, basically, as we've seen, God raises up these leaders for a time, but God reigns. Even when the people ask for a king, he tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, because he is the king. It's a theocracy. It's a literal theocracy. And I don't want to get into too much of theocracies and the ideas of theocracies throughout the world. However, at this time, that's what it is. Okay, so other than that, let's just jump in. Again, what what we'd be advantageous from doing is looking at these accounts as kind of a movie. So again, this is kind of a separate account going, again, sequelizing from the preceding accounts. Okay, all right, so chapter 1, verse 1. We'll see how far we get. You know, I don't, again, I think what we're going to consider today is merely Hannah. I wanted to get into the birth of Samuel, but I think we'll leave that for next week, God willing. So, chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, uh, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. So Hannah means grace, okay? Hannah means grace. And real quickly, this seems, it seems like uh, Elkanah married Hannah first. And since she couldn't bear children, he, re- he married again. Now, without getting into polygamy too much, basically the creation order, the creation statute is for one man and for one woman. However... There are, there are times of polygamy that is allowed. David himself has many wives. We've seen Jacob. However, we also know the situation with Jacob. We saw Abraham, you know, uh, lying with, uh, uh, I can't remember 
However, <laughs> we remember Abraham. So, same thing kind of going on right here. So, uh, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from, from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So, this man is pious. This is a very pious family. Remember, again, this is a period of darkness, a period of spiritual decline, the spiritual decadence, and he is choosing to continue to be faithful. Go yearly. There are basically three feasts a year that they would have to go to the central area. Right now it's Shiloh. Eventually it'll be Jerusalem after uh, David becomes king. However, right now it's in Shiloh. So at least three times a year they're going to sacrifice for these feasts and serve the Lord. Uh, also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And we'll, see, we'll get into them next week, God willing. These are two wicked sons, and we, we will have much to say about them. Um, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina and uh, his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So this, this isn't to really suggest that he favored Hannah. But he loved her, and through his compassion for her, because Hannah's very low. Remember, we've talked about the barrenness of women and how, what would that would imply from society, but th what that also implies to oneself. God in Deuteronomy had promised, basically, remember chapter 26, where it says, If you obey, blessed are you when you go out, blessed are you when you come in, blessing, blessing, blessing. And then, if you disobey, it goes through... Uh, a litany of different curses but one with the blessing was if you obey my voice you will never have barrenness basically so Hannah's kind of conflicted here we have to understand that God has promised that if you're faithful you will you will not be barren and she's a very faithful woman and so she's wondering she's struggling with this and Elkanah Knight knows that and so he's trying to help her he's trying to be a good husband to her, to support her. You know, he can't do anything about her barrenness, so all he can do is the best he can to comfort her. So that's what he's doing. So he gives her a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her, so that, again, that just implies he didn't look at the same societal norms. Again, in other words, he doesn't think that God's cursing her this way. He's just saying, basically, he, he sees it for what it is and still chooses to love Hannah beside. So it was, year by year, when, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that, that she provoked her. Oh, I'm sorry. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So Penina is... is instigating, always belittling her for her barrenness. So again, I think she's jealous because seemingly O'Connor is showing her a little bit more favor, but not necessarily. And instead of being there to support her as another sister in the faith, she's belittling her. She's demeaning her. She continues to scorn her. Now, in God's providence though, who knows? Maybe if this rival, if this other wife hadn't kept on pestering her for her barrenness, who knows if she goes and petitions God for, for a baby. So I think in the providence of God, he's actually allowing, causing this Penina to, to bring Hannah down so that she will lift her eyes up to heaven, to where they belong, to seek a son. So, so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So, Elkanah continues to 
give her double, double portions and she's not eating. She's not eating. She doesn't have an appetite. She might be also feasting. There's a period of time where David, we've, we've considered the story of David and Bathsheba. Remember that terrible story of adultery and then he kills uh, Uzziah, her husband. And then finally Nathan, you know, opens his eyes to that. He repents and then through God's judgment, this, the child is going to die soon after he is born. And so what David does is he dresses in sackcloth and he fasts. And he, he just fasts and he's miserable. He puts ashes on his head. It's a, it's a time of mourning. And, and the, people are, the, the people join with him in that. And then as soon as the child dies, he, puts, he anoints his head. He cleans his, himself up. He washes his face. He cleans himself up and gets all dressed up. And people are asking him, what's up with that? Now your child is dead and now you're not mourning. You were mourning this whole time and now he's dead. And basically he says, while the child was alive, I, I could petition God, I can go to God, and I could hope, hope that he keeps him alive. But now that he's gone, I've lost all hope of that. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So she's, she might just be fasting before she goes and prays to God for her son. Okay? But right now, again, Elkanah uh, is showing her special favor, and she's disinclined to receive that. I think Elkanah's kind of typical of a man, though, you know, instead of being kind of compassionate, which he is, which he is, but men are so prone to try to fix these problems, you know, to kind of go above, and, and that's fine, that's fine to go above and beyond, but ultimately Elkanah's powerless as to actually do anything about her actual problem. She is barren, and he is powerless to do anything about that. Obviously, he's able to conceive children. And she's not, so he can't do anything about that, but he's continuing to try. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, again, what he's trying to do is comfort her, but ultimately, even giving her a double portion at the feast really just increases her sorrow. It's, it's just another sign of, you're favoring me because I'm barren. So it's just a, kind of another reminder. It's a constant reminder. Now he's asking her, why are you so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And, I mean, I'm sure the answer is no, but that doesn't mean that I'm not still grieving for being barren. Now, I think he points to the ten sons because, remember, Rebecca, I'm sorry, Rachel, was barren as well. And remember, Leah and those concubines had ten other sons. Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, but before that, you know, she was barren for a time. So I think he's pointing toward the ten sons. So, you know, Rachel had two sons. Am I not better than even all the other ten sons? You know, I've been treating you well. I've loved you. I've been showing you favor. Am I not better than that? And she doesn't answer. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. She is pouring her heart out. If we don't know anything about this kind of prayer, I, will, I implore you to fall on your knees and see God for who He is, you yourself for who you are, and even different circumstances ought to bring us to the place of God, ought to bring us in bitterness of soul and seeking our God. That's what she's doing, okay? That's what she's doing. However, then she made a vow. 
and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will, will give your maidservant a male, male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now remember, the last judge in the, the book of Judges was Samson. So I find it interesting that she's promising to basically make him a Nazarite from birth. But what she's saying is, God, if you give me a male child, I will dedicate him to you. Basically, he'll be my son, but ultimately he will be your servant. I will, you give me a son, and I will dedicate him to you. This is a wonderful mother, okay? Do you have, can you even imagine how hard that is to promise? She's, been, she's already barren, and she's pleading. This means she is not pleading for herself. She's pleading for the nation. And let's remember that when we start to look at her prayer. And remember, I even told you to, to compare that prayer to Mary's. And we'll talk a little bit about that. However, she's basically praying for, the, for, for a deliverer. You know, we've had this terrible time of silence. We'll see that the Word of God was rare in that time. So that means that nobody's preaching. Nobody's really considering these things. So it seems like Elkanah is, seems like Hannah is, and their family. But the Word of God is very scarce in the land right now. So she's promising God, if you give me a child, if you bless me with a child, then I will give him over to your service. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Again, we were going to consider Eli somewhat next week, God willing. But this indicates that this man, who is a high priest at this time, knows nothing of prayers like this. He's never been brought low. And we'll see... He has every reason to be brought low. His two sons are wicked. They'll, they'll be judged. And his whole line, his whole family line is going to be destroyed. Basically, God judges his family. And he never petitions God. He never petitions God. And we'll see that again, God willing. But right now, he knows nothing of this. So he just thinks this, this woman is drunk. She's in anguish of soul. So she's praying silently, but moving her lips. She can't control her body. You can, I mean, you're, you're somewhat limited. When you pour yourself out to God, you pour your, your spirit, your soul, your insides, your heart, your mind out to God. And that sometimes looks physically kind of awkward, but that doesn't matter. When, when David has his great victory, he's coming back and they're, and they're dancing and playing music. And, you know, he's got this, you know, the robe on. And, you know, he's dancing around and, you know, he didn't have an undergarment on. And so one of his wives get re gets really upset. And she's basically saying, how, do you, how are you exposing yourself like this? And he, and he says, you know, what is, the, what is it to me if I defile myself before the Lord? I am praising God. I don't, you know, I don't want to be exposed like that. But at the time, I didn't care. I didn't consider that. I was praising God. So pay attention to that, my wife. So this it's kind of the same thing. So she's pouring out her soul. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine, neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. 
So again, she's pouring out her soul, but this is a great, this is called a merism, which we're going to consider even in her prayer. So she uses two opposites to make a point. Okay, so she's saying, I've drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drinks. So in other words, I haven't poured anything to drink myself, but I'm pouring out my spirit. I'm not drinking intoxicating drink. I'm not pouring out any of this intoxicating drink. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of, of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Now, maidservant, a wicked woman. This is literally a daughter of Belial. Belial is, was a god at that time, which again next week, God willing, when we consider the two sons of Eli, they are called sons of Baal. I mean, they're called wicked sons, but we have to understand that's the translation. So, so she's saying, do not consider me a daughter of Belial. I haven't, I'm not drunk. I haven't... I haven't drank anything of the sort. I'm just pouring out my, my soul. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She has not conceived a child yet. She has not conceived a child yet. She has gone and poured out her soul before the Lord. And God's high priest says, God grant you what you desire. So, and her faith is amazing. Basically, she knows. She is quite sure that God is going to grant her request. So now she's delighted. She comes back. She eats and her face is no longer sad just because of the promise. Just because of the promise. Again, she's not yet conceived. She just knows this is going to happen. Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. She depends on His providence and His providence alone. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. Just so you know, Ramathim, Zophim is the, only, is the only time in the place of the Bible where that is. So Ramah is the shorter version. It's the same place. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now Samuel is literally the Hebrew Shammah and then El. Now Shammah really means heard of or heard from, but the, Samuel can, can actually mean um, the, the face of God or the person of God, but it can, it's more literal, literally, especially how uh, Han is using it, heard of God, because she even says, uh, um, because I've asked for him from the Lord. So in other words, the Lord has heard my petition and now he's granted my request. And El is a name for God. Elohim, we've got, come across Elohim. That's the plural of El. Uh, and, and that's going to come too. That's, Emmanuel is God with us. So Iman is with us. God, again, El. So again, this, they kind of have similar names. What we're going to consider again next week, God willing, is the similarities between Samuel and Jesus. We'll, we'll consider this somewhat shortly when we get to her prayer. But I want us, you know, we need to recognize that even at the outset before we get there. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then it will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Now weaning would take a little bit longer than we customarily, you know, they don't have baby food. You know, so basically weaning would take about three years 
So she's going this she doesn't go to the sacrifices for three years to wean him. Because, you know, there's not a nurse around at the temple. There's nobody designated for that. She's fulfilling her motherly duties until the child is old enough to dedicate to the Lord. So she's still going to fulfill her vow. She's just fulfilling her duties before this time. So O'Connor, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Best to you. Wait until you, wean, you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. This, this could also be... Translated, only let your word be established. But it's more likely that the Lord... So in other words, so let it be. However, don't forget. Don't forget what you had promised. You know, he's, he's not suggesting that she will. But he, as a good head of the household, is just continually reminding her. That's fine, but don't cleave to him once the, three, once the weaning is over. Okay? You know, don't, don't wean him until he's like 15. Just because, you know, don't re, you know, redefine this, the terms. Um, okay. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, uh, with three bulls, one ephod flower, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. That is, that is a lot. That is very expensive. So this is a special offering that she's bringing when she dedicates Samuel. She's not only giving her son over to God, but she is praising God for granting her petition and praising God that he is going to be the next deliverer and, and seeking his will and, and his providence in doing that as well. So, then they, so they, then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. So she's just reminding you, hey, remember three years ago, well, probably a little more than three years ago, Close to four years ago, I was the one you thought was drunk, and, and you said the Lord grant your, your petition, and, and indeed, God has been faithful. God has granted my petition. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. That's a terrible translation. She's not lending him to God. It's not like you know God's borrowing him for a time. She's dedicating him to the Lord. Okay. Now, Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, very briefly. Again, Hannah is barren. Mary, Mary, as we know, was able to conceive. But technically, her womb was barren as well. It was barren of a seed. So, they're both childless, so to speak, and, and, and since she had, Mary hadn't been with a man, you know, she's not able to conceive. So God miraculously provides for both of these women. They're both barren, so to speak, and they both rejoice in God's salvation. And they both are dedicating or, or recognize that their child, their son, is meant to deliver his people. That's what Samuel is doing. He's, he's the last deliverer. Remember, the term judge is better defined as deliverer. So Samuel is the last deliverer of his people to the kingdom. Christ is the deliverer as king. So there are these parallels, okay? And, and we'll see a few, but again, I really encourage you all to, to cross-reference these yourselves. And, and look into them yourself. So my, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted, exalted in the Lord. My, the horn is a sign of strength. 
Think about like a deer, a huge deer with his crazy antlers, and he's so huge and 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 scary. You know, he's kind of he's kind of scary. A rhinoceros, same thing. You don't want to be around a rhinoceros. It's fine to watch them on like planet Earth or what? Is, what is it called? Earth? Planet? I don't remember. Is it planet Earth? Okay, planet Earth. You know, it's fine to watch them on TV, but you don't want to be around. You don't want to be close by to one of those guys. That horn is intimidating. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now her enemies right now, her right, now she is considering the enemies of God. All of God's enemies are technically our enemies in a way. But um, but she said but specifically Penina, her rival, she's saying I I smile at my enemies. She kept on deriding me and demeaning me and making fun of me because I was barren. And you have been faithful, my God. She didn't think you could do this. I knew you could do this. So I smile at my enemies. And I rejoice in your salvation. Again, Mary said the same thing. My spirit rejoices. My soul rejoices in, in, in God of uh, my salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Now holiness, it, it is most base definition, just basically, basically means totally separated. In other words, not wholly other, like we consider with Karl Barth and so forth. There is an analogy of being. However, he is completely above. He's completely perfect. There is nothing to be compared. See, for there is none besides you. There is nothing like you. There is no one like you. You are God, and there is none besides. Now, there is not, nor is there any rock like our God. The other gods would be referred to as rocks, and they would even carve you know, the gods from these rocks. And the prophets and the Psalms deride them for making these images of these gods that can't speak, they can't hear, they can't walk, they can't serve, they can't do anything. So basically she's saying, there is no rock like you. You are the rock of ages. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Wait, so again, even Mary says, he brings down the proud and he takes up the humble. He raises up the humble and the poor in spirit. Just like Christ's Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He takes the lowly, he takes the humble, the ones who recognize that they are cast low, that we are sinners before a righteous and holy God, and thereby we see him. And we, he sees us. The proud, the proud and the boastful are filled with the spirit of this age. They're, they're filled with a spirit of pride, which blinds them to God. That's partly why they don't have eyes to see. And it closes their ears, so they don't have ears to hear. The ones that are found low, the ones that God brings down low, the ones that God humbles onto their knees, can only look up to him. And that's what that's what the, this continues to say. He rises, he raises up the, the lowly, and he pushes down, he, he destroys the proud and the haughty. The, oh, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, by him actions are weighed. So in other words, especially the proud find themselves autonomous. They think they laugh in, you know, at God, the idea of God. And basically this prayer is saying, God is the God of knowledge. You think you're full of knowledge. You think you're the wise sage of this age. 
No, he is God. He is omnipotent. And by him, actions are weighed. Not you. You think you're the ultimate judge of, of everybody. He is the judge of all the earth. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. So again, the, the bows, the, the things that the men and women, proud men and women, see as their strength are broken. God breaks them. They're nothing to him. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. So again, this is a merism. So the bows of the mighty men are broken. So that's one. However, the, those who stumbled are girded with strength. They're, they're lifted up, those, who, those who, were stu who stumbled. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Do you see the merism? So again, it, it, uh, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. They're no longer full, and they're trying to hire themselves out for just a morsel of bread. They're absolutely poor and, and impoverished. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Again, this is a spiritual analogy, in other words. The hungry, those who starve after righteousness. And a brief word about this, because we're going to consider this a little bit in our next, um, in our next session. Righteousness is, in a, is a commodity that very few people seek. We seek riches, we seek fame, we seek fortune, we seek recognition. We seek comfort, we seek vacations. Righteousness is a very far off thing. That was not the, the deal at this time. The true people of God hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what God, uh, Christ even says. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled with his righteousness. But that's what she's saying. Those who hunger have ceased to hunger, for he has filled them by his grace and his mercy with himself, the bread which came down from heaven, our Savior. So we hunger no longer. We, have, we hunger no longer. Our cup runneth over, right? In my Father's house, his servants have bread enough and to spare. We, we neither go hungry nor thirsty. He is the fount of living waters. He's the bread which came down from heaven, never ceasing, limitless. And even the barren has borne seven. Remember, seven is complete. And she who has many children has become feeble. So in other words, she has become barren or forlorn or, or lonely. The Lord, okay, a word, a brief word. Okay, Hannah is a faithful mother. Okay, is a wonderful mother, because again, we, we, what we want to do is consider motherhood as we will consider fatherhood next week, God willing. Not every mother is wonderful. Every, most mothers love, have an affection for their children. Certain mothers serve their children well and seek righteousness for them. So they will raise them up in the ways of the Lord, not in ways that they make up. Okay? A faithful mother, a faithful mother like Hannah, is going to dedicate their sons and daughters, whether specifically to God in this way, or spiritually, as I'm sure she did. She, she does have three other sons and two daughters, but and I'm sure she raised up, them up in the fear of the Lord as well. However, other mothers do not, and she's 
I think she's saying, uh, even the baron has born seven, so even the, even the mother who, who can't conceive that much, or who has a very small quiver of arrows. It's in the Psalms, it talks about having many arrows in your quiver. That's sons and daughters, basically. Mostly sons. But, uh, but she's, she's just saying, the barren has born seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. In other words, even the, even the mothers, the unrighteous mothers, might have 17,000 children, and she is utterly alone, because she has not raised them up in the way of the Lord. Eli's sons are that way, and we will see he never rebukes them. Sadly, Samuel's sons don't walk in his ways either, but again, God willing, we will get to that. But Hannah is a faithful woman. Again, let's, let's see and recognize where men fail, where women rise up. That's what, that's what Hannah's doing here. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. These are obvious merisms. So, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Now, that's an indication of the resurrection. And she'll continue. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. So the Lord kills and makes alive. That's obvious. The, he brings down to the grave and brings up because death is, is the wages of sin is death. So those though that are in Christ who have been forgiven through Christ are going to be raised up. Everybody's going to be raised up, but raised up to him. So uh, he brings down to the grave and brings up. So he will take down to the grave and continue and leave in the grave. In other words, after they're raised back down to hell, but he will raise up his, his people into Christ, into heaven, into his presence. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. That's obvious. But again, we need to see this in a spiritual manner. In other words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is his sovereignty. It is his will that determines who receives mercy and who receives judgment. But that does not make the, the person any less guilty before God. I'll just put it that way. Uh, and we can get into that more in another time, God willing. So, he brings low and lifts up. He, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. So basically, again, tearing down the princes and bringing up the humble into their thrones, into their palaces. Because, again, he makes poor and he makes rich. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Now, the pillars of the earth, there are so many different interpretations of this, what I think this just means is for the pillars of the earth, so the, the foundation of creation is, are the Lord's, is the Lord's. The foundation is the Lord's. The pillars is what would keep something up. So he holds the world in his control. Again, he is created and he sustains all things. So that's what she's saying. I believe, ultimately, that is what she's saying, but there are many cute different ways to get there. That I think that just basically nails it down, though. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. So again, he will, he will protect his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. They have no light. They cannot see. They don't have eyes to see. 
For by strength no man shall prevail. The, adverse, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. So again, by man's strength no one can prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will go to the ends of the earth to save people, his people, but he, will, he is the judge of all the earth. Remember, he will also judge the righteous. So there is not one man or woman ever who will not go before the throne of Christ. And we will consider that in our next session very briefly. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Okay, very briefly. This is already pointing forward to the king. Pointing forward to the king of uh, King David. King Saul, but ultimately King David. Now, exalt the horn, again, strength. The anointed, that's literally Messiah. And in the Greek, is Christos, Christ. So, she's saying he will give strength to his king. Right now, there's no king. Right now, there's no king. There have been mentions in... in Genesis, Deuteronomy, of a king to come, even, even in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses' sermon, very long sermon, he even says, when you ask for a king, and then basically they even they come up with a law for the king. Okay, So this is basically pointing, they had already known that there's going to be a kingdom. Okay, So she's just, she sees it coming, basically. So she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Messiah, of the promised seed. Okay, now we are going to skip uh, verses 12 through 17 until next week, God willing. However, I do want to just conclude with Hannah with uh, verses 18 through 21. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. So this is basically just a linen garment that he would wear underneath. He will be high priest. Right now he's, he's, he's training to be a priest. So he's given this, this little ephod, this little linen ephod. He's basically in training. Okay? Uh, moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. She's still his mother. She's still his mother. And she's still providing to, for him. She, he is in the house of God where there should be many robes, but she's taking specific care and probably making these special ro robes. She loves her son. She was barren forever, and now she has a son. Just like Joseph, you know, with a, with a robe, you know, the coat of many colors, because he was favored. So Hannah is going out of her way, a great expense and a great time, to, to do this for, to, for Samuel. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Again, that's a dedication. Then they would go to their own home. So this is great. This is great. The, the, the man of God at that time continues to bless them, sees the providence of God. Eli's not perfect, very far from it, but there are indications that he, that he cares for the things of God, that, that this did strike his heart and he, and he loves this, you know, and so he's inclined to continue to bless them. This is great. You know, Hannah, I can't, this is wonderful. You actually fulfilled your vow. You have dedicated your only son, your only son, to the Lord. Bless you. Bless you and your husband who allowed you to do this. The husband could have said no. The husband could have shut that down. Literally, legally, she made this vow. And so that is a contract that if you don't fulfill, there are going to be issues. However, the husband 
can relieve her of that promise or of that vow. He does not. He does not. That says a lot about Elkanah. So Eli notices that too. So bless you both for your faithfulness. This is amazing. Very few would be inclined to do this. I don't know if I would be inclined to do this. I mean, my sons are older now, so I might be more inclined. But when they were, when they were cute little, no. <laughs> um, and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew up, grew before the Lord. So again, God, God blesses them again through the blessing of this man, who he is going to judge, but right now he is his anointed priest. So anointings also... Or throughout, but but more specifically, it's pointing toward the Messiah and to the King. But priests would be anointed, and at the end of Samuel, at end of Second Samuel, it, God promises that He is going to raise up a faithful High Priest. Let's remember, let's remember that throughout the history of redemption, there are prophets, priests, and kings and deliverers. All of them imperfect, and all of them only able to deliver for a time, to serve as a priest for a time, to preach the word of God for a time, to rule and reign for God as serving God for a time, and altogether imperfect. As, as much as David was a man after God's own heart, he was also a man after his own. He did, I mean, we've considered some, and we will consider others. But the ultimate salvation, the, the, what, the, what the Bible continues, the Old Covenant continues to point us forward to, is the one perfect deliverer, the one perfect king, one perfect priest, one perfect prophet, the one that Moses even promised God would raise up a prophet just like me. And we see other prophecies of the son of David, so one like David, and so forth. And Eleazar as the priest, or Jonathan. There was another faithful um, priest, Jonathan, that is later referred to. So, as we continue to move down this road, because again, next week we are going to consider Samuel, God willing, and then we will finally enter into, well, we'll, we'll start a little bit next week when he anoints Saul, okay? But let's just recognize this is a huge transitional point. Remember, we made the point last week, we need to pay attention to, to the, the progression, regression, just the continual cycle, the continual cycle of, of decadence and prosperity, of, of sinning before the Lord and of repenting to the Lord. Okay? But, again, as we go into the kingdom specifically David's kingdom, we just need to see the parallels of the people of God before the king of kings came, okay? And we'll make that more of a point, but again, I've even mentioned that from the book of Malachi to when John came, John the Baptist came, was a period of 400 years, it's called the intertestamental period, utterly silent of prophecy, utterly silent Technically, of the Word of God, um, and we're going to consider actually um, kind of the 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 leading up to that, just as they returned from the captivity and the exile. But uh, we'll consider that here shortly, God willing. All right.
Praise God. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.